Last time on the Kaiju Apostle Podcast. Because, you know, there's the part of the movie where he's coming out of his cage and he's doing just fine. No, uh, you're not. No, you're not going to trap me, David. I'm like, I really don't want to see Kaiju porn on my timeline. Right. I've had some dangerous Google searches, that's for sure. I mean, what's the best film to introduce Godzilla or someone to Godzilla? All monsters attack. Try to stay alive. I think we do that better than they do. (laughs) Welcome back to the Kaiju Apostle podcast, a deep dive into Toho's rich history of monster films and discovering what lies beneath the surface. This is episode, well, I guess movie 16. I think Mm -hmm. we're on episode... 18? I don't know. I probably should have checked. Uh, my name is David. I'm one of the hosts of this podcast. And joining me is the always insert positive adjective here, Chris Wormaskirch. Mm. <laughs> I well, was not prepared. That's all right. After my stunning oops, after my stunning presence last week, I don't I don't know how you could have competed. Mm, I, I, I can't. That's kind of my thing. Um, so it is actually episode 16. It's movie 14. Well, see, this is where I get confused because we had a couple building a bridge episodes, right? So I'm like right. going off the numbering scheme and it's definitely not accurate. So anyway, <laughs> this one's about where the Gargantuas. <laughs> and this is the one we're going to get all the celebrity listeners. I think Quentin Tarantino himself is going to tune in. Oh, yeah. Sorry, man. No feet this episode. Not really. Not really my thing. <laughs> Um, so as always appreciative of the support and listens, uh, to the podcast. Um, I know this past episode we did, it's, uh, wasn't really the most popular movie. I mean, my guess is it's going to get more listens than, uh, Varan or Godzilla raids again. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, definitely not the most popular film in the entry in the series that we're doing, but uh, we did get some good feedback. Um, unfortunately, it was a little timely, um, you know, as of the recording. Today's the 31st of May. Uh, this week's been pretty intense. I think that's kind of a... Putting it lightly. Mild way of putting yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Um, just with George Floyd and all the riots going on. Um, it's been a lot. And I think... It wasn't intentional by any means, um, but just having that discussion about human worth and what determines uh, the value of a human life is very important this week um, and every week, of course. But um, definitely would like to keep having that conversation with y'all if you feel like you need to kind of process that. Um, we're not going to say we're some like definitive place to go to, but obviously that's kind of the the goal here with the podcast is to to start conversations. And um, I think we're going to, that was kind of the plan, right? Chris is once we get through the movie introduction, um, get into kind of our methodology and our approach to why we're doing the podcast. Cause we really haven't done that yet. Um, so yeah, I think that was kind of our goal cause we didn't really have a whole lot to discuss mm-hmm. with this movie. This time that actually might be true. Yeah, we say that a lot and that ends up being we have more to say than we were planning. But uh, this time around, it's it's a little, little different. Um, 
So do you just want to go ahead and uh, just get into the information about the the movie and we can just kind of dive in from there? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, cool. Yeah, normally we have a lot more to say before this, um, but just kind of, yeah, not a lot here. <laughs> so we are discussing War of the Gargantuas. This was released in Japanese, Japanese theaters on July 31st, 1966. Um, so uh, plot summary. Every time I, I, I think of a plot summary, I'm thinking of the Clone Wars where the narrator is just like, war! <laughs> yeah. You know, and I can never, I can never Can't find a way to... Can't get that serial approach going. No, man. I'd love to, though. Okay. Be awesome. So, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, octopi and gargantuas attack! After several ships disappear, leaving behind only a sole survivor and a lot of chewed up clothes, Dr. Paul Stewart, the biggest ball of charisma this side of the Mississippi, is brought in to determine if the culprit, a giant green creature, is the same Frankenstein as our previous film. Of course, we as the viewers know it's not, but there is clearly a massive gas leak in Japan, so the collective population has forgotten what Frankenstein actually looks like, including Dr. Stewart himself whose hair color conveniently changed. Um, you know, I, I, honestly, when I was writing this, I didn't know where I was going with the plot summary because the writing team didn't either. So we have Dr. Stewart, uh, Akimi Tagawa, the artist formerly known as Tagami, and Dr. Yuzo Mamiya. They begin their journey to discover what's really going on, which if you watch the movie isn't a whole lot. But hey, there's two Frankens, I mean, gargantuas in the movie. And they begin to fight over the ethics of human consumption, which, if you really think about it, means this is a discussion about cannibalism. I think we just won weird ethics bingo. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> um, so the staff this time around, uh, director is Ishiro Honda, a screenplay by Ruben Berkovich, uh, Takeshi Kimura, and Ishiro Honda. Um, producers were Tomoyuki Tanaka, Ruben Berkovich, Henry Saperstein, and Kenichiro uh, Sunoda. Music was Akira Ifakube. Uh, cinematography, Hajime Hoizumi. Um, special effects, Eiji Tsuburaya and uh, Teruyoshi Nakano. So pretty much the same cast as last time, just a little... Uh, staff as last time, just a little bit of fluctuation there. Mm -hmm. um, the cast, though, so this is where the movie gets really strange. So we didn't get Nick Adams again, which is a bummer. Um, we get Russ Tamblin as Dr. Paul Stewart. So Kumi, uh, Kumi Mizuno comes back, but instead of being uh, uh, Tagami, she is now Akemi Togawa, which not being familiar with the Japanese, you know, surnames and stuff like that. I'm sure there is a huge difference between Tagawa and Tagami, but to Westerners, I'm just like, you substituted a few letters. That was it. But I'm sure it was more significant than that. Um, but they put Kenji Sahara in, so I'm happy about that. Uh, he was Dr. Yuzo uh, uh, Mamiya. Then Jun Tazaki was Major General Hashimoto. Uh, Kip Hamilton was the very talented singer on the ship. Um, she didn't, I don't think she actually had a name. Uh, Yoshibumi uh, Tajimi was Hirai. Then Haru Nakajima played Gaira. And Hiroshi uh, Sakita was Sanda. And then... Uh, Yasuhiro Komiya was young Santa. So 
before we get into your thoughts about the film, Chris, um, just a little bit of context and trivia. So as we've already kind of leaned, you've already indicated in this, um, in the English version of the film, which I didn't watch, did you end up watching that? Mm-mm. Yeah, I, I tried to because now that there's HBO Max, they've got the uh, the Criterion version of the film and it looks gorgeous. I just can't do the dub. Um, so in the English version of the film, the references to the previous film, namely Frankenstein, were removed because Saperstein was concerned. Not only was the connection like very tenuous, um, but Frankenstein Conquers the World did not end up being the success he was hoping it was going to be. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's that correlation we talked about last time of hearing Frankenstein. You're thinking about the universal monster, so that's why he tried to get rid of that as much as possible. Um, and that came from David Klatt's book, along with the fact that this film holds the honor of having its footage poached for stock footage in later films more than any other. So, I mean, because there's some really cool shots, like you yeah. know the Mazer, the Mazer cannons, and all that. I mean, you know. This film definitely has a lot going for it in the aesthetics department. I will yeah. I will give it that. Um, getting into the Honda biography, though. So the general consensus about Russ Tamblin was that he was a pain in the ass. Um, the, the new assistant director uh, said even Honda looked pissed. On top of that, Tamblin's acting sucked. Afterwards, we complained. Why the hell did they bring over a guy like that? Even Saperstein agreed. He said Tamblin was a royal pan, especially compared to Nick Adams. Mm. So, you know, the case in point, this is Tamblin here. There was one interpreter that spoke English and he interpreted between myself and Honda and myself and the actors. Lucky for me, they didn't know what I was saying half the time. So I changed all my lines. My lines were so bad in the original script and I changed them all. Like, oh, man. I mean, obviously, I'm not there. I, I can't really speak to that whole situation, but that's just the whole attitude is just it, yeah. It, yeah, I, I, I don't know if it was in the biography or where I heard it, but just it definitely feels like he slept walk through the whole, the whole movie. Well, and we've seen it, so yeah. <laughs> um, so it's interesting. The movie went through a lot of title changes. So it went from the Frankenstein brothers, the two Frankenstein's, Frankenstein versus Frankenstein. Frankenstein's decisive battle and Frankenstein's fight being plural Frankenstein's. Um, eventually it was released in Japan as Frankenstein's monsters, Sanda versus Gaila. Um, and because of the American joint American Japanese joint venture, there were at least nine shot, nine scenes of the film that were shot in two different ways to make sure to accommodate for the American release. Mm. So I imagine that's, that's yeah, it's kind of, I, interesting process i mean i wonder if that's still something that i don't feel like that would happen very commonly now right um but i wonder if that ever does still happen um so poll wise we asked people if you could have seen sanda and gyra featured in another film which era would you have preferred so we have the heisei era which is late 80s into the 90s the millennium era which was 99 to 2004 um Grant, this is when Godzilla films came out. The eras were more expansive than that. Or the current era. Um, we had 70 votes, uh, 57.1%. I did not calculate what that is. Um, <laughs> voted for this current era. Um, so it seems like there's still a decent chunk of people who would love to see the Men A New film. Um, 
but I guess ultimately, and this is where I wanted to get your thoughts, Chris, because you're new to this and you don't have nostalgia, you know, coming into play here. Um, so our, we had a really good discussion on Twitter and the question was, or the questions, excuse me. Um, we discussed last week how Frankenstein conquers the world is often ignored. Whereas for a non-Godzilla film, War of the Gargantuas has received a lot of praise, even from A-list celebrities, even fet- foot fetish people like Tarantino. <laughs> so our question this Part week is... <laughs> so our question this week is, does War of the Gargantuas deserve said praise? Why or why not? Um, consensus is it does. We have a lot of War of Gargantuas fans. Um, I would say... Gargantua cast is proof of that, right? I mean, they literally took Gargantuas and made it a podcast. That's a <laughs> logo. Um, overall, uh, it seems like there's a lot of people who love it. Um, I know there's a lot of Cain and Abel references in the threads. Um, and we'll get into that here in a little bit. I know uh, the two comments I'm looking at here. Um, actually, I'll take three. So first one was John Bellotti. Um, who is the artist Robo7. Um, it is the penultimate kaiju film. It doesn't have the continuity baggage of being a Godzilla film. The only thing it suffers from is its loose connection from Can- uh, Frankenstein Conquers the World. Um, J. St. G. said it's a masterpiece. The way the monsters express themselves with gestures and expressions convey to anyone watching the film and get invested in tenacious conflict of brothers who essentially look at humans in a different way. And then we have Thomas Fairchild who says, War of the Gargantuas is unique because we can emphasize with the monsters on so many levels. Again, the Cain and Abel allegory elevated the tension, making the situation not only personal for the monsters, but for us as well. It just goes to show that you don't need your antagonist to be apocalyptic. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, a lot of positive comments here, um, including a couple people who... Uh, said the movie scared them. One person said that uh, Russ Hamblin's portrayal of Dr. Stewart is compassionate and wise. Um, so yeah, Chris, I mean, now that you don't, you've had some exposure to the genre, but you don't have that baggage, enlighten us with your thoughts going into the film before watching it. You know the drill. Yeah, I... Um... I don't think I had too many opinions on the front end of it. I think I knew about the Gargantia cast and I figured it must be it's pretty good. But kind of in this age of parody and joking, I wasn't sure if it was like a humor cast that just shared a name with it or if it was intentionally using um, the name because they really loved it. Like you don't see any like um, War of the Monsters cast or... Gojira Raids Again cast, so I wasn't sure how to buy it. So the only thing I really knew about it is I knew some people really liked it, and like some celebrities really liked it, hence my one reference to Quentin Tarantino. So I was, I guess I was looking forward to it a little bit more than most, just because it's got such a, um, such a reputation preceding it, but I, I don't know if it landed for me quite as well. Um, I think in terms of like the fights, I, I, I guess I'm starting to become a little less wowed by the whole concept. 
So it's um, sometimes a struggle to tune in as much. So I really like the first one with the giant octopus. The second one became a little more standard fare. And I think that's because like with my steady diet of Power Rangers and Sentai and Ultraman and now these, like maybe I'm becoming familiar with it. But I think my biggest letdown was that the people, the people actually like the story focused on, I wasn't really buying a lot of their confusion. So I don't know. I I can see why people enjoyed it. I don't want to take that away from anyone. So if you ask, does it deserve the praise it's gotten? Well, if people like it, then yeah, absolutely. It deserves the praise that it's gotten. Yeah. But I'm just not sure I vibed with it as much. And maybe that's just because... Um, I the Cain and Abel stuff like we'll get into it of course but I just as I watched and I was trying to figure out maybe what the point was and I just kind of got this Jungian nature versus nurture thing going on mm-hmm. um, I was like okay so maybe there's kind of a point um, but I it didn't so, so like certain previous films right when there's a theme across the movie the kaiju are part of the theme and the humans are part of the theme like everyone plays into the theme but I thought like the humans didn't really have as much involvement in this nature nurture debate um, as much as the first time. So I don't want to sound like one of those pretentious guys who says like, it's not about the monsters. It's only about the people, but I can say I'm more interested in the people. And because of that, I kind of lost some of my connection to it. Yeah. And there definitely is an element of pretentiousness in the fandom with that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I have definitely, course corrected myself in that regard right because i know when i started getting back into the movies i i started to get back into them just because i'm like oh godzilla like these are gonna be fun to watch and then i realized like yes they're fun movies but if i'm just gonna come in for the monster action i'm gonna get bored really fast like i'm glad there are movies that have more than that right right but so yeah i mean there's definitely a pretentiousness there and I really try to do my my best through the podcast, like the Twitter and stuff to help like encourage people to get away from that. But I say that as I leave a letterboxed review that says only kaiju film where it's appropriate to fast forward to the monster scenes because those are the only ones worth watching. <laughs> like <laughs> I really didn't like this movie yeah. at all. <laughs> well, I think there's I think there's something about like pretentiousness is fine as long as it's not gatekeeping. And, you know, sorry, buzzword alert, but like, um, it's okay to be, I mean, it's okay to have your own likes and dislikes. So, um, we use pretentiousness, maybe a little tongue in cheek. Yeah. But well, the the difference is when you punch down on people Mm -hmm. to make your point, right? I, I think movies are fair game. You should be able to critique a movie even brutally. But as soon as you start bringing people into the equation, and you have your critique being synonymous with critiquing people for liking it, that's when you need to kind of question why you're in film criticism or if you should say anything at all, right? So, well, like, and that's um, that's why we're not calling Russ Tamblin an ourselves. We're just quoting, right? Yeah. That's why we're not saying, like, you'll never hear us once say, like, oh, gosh, I'm going to just pull a name out of my butt. You know, like, Chris, the actor Chris Wormskirsch is an ugly ugly sob like we're not attacking people but we are kind of talking about a commercial product that was made to make money mm-hmm. and whatever dreams are represented in those we're not going to say you know 
because this movie is bad, you had bad dreams or you had bad aspirations. So, well, and more than that, but we didn't like this movie. So if you like it, then you have bad taste, right? Right. That's that's definitely because I mean, there were some comments on the Twitter just equating it again as being a masterpiece. And I'm like, what's funny is with last week, like I didn't love Frankenstein Conquers the World. Going back and watching War of the Gargantuas, that's actually elevated my appreciation for Frankenstein Conquers the World, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, movie tastes change, but I'm never going to sit here and be like, you know, you have horrible film taste opinions. You know, just, you guys get what we're saying. And yeah. so our point is, it's it's interesting how widely the variant the opinions are on these films. Because really... It's not even just because of the monster action. They managed to create monsters here that are very sympathetic. They're very, I mean, they're the mm-hmm. most human, apart from Frankenstein last week, you know, they're the most human um, kaiju that we've had. So it's kind of hard yeah. not to have that connection, well, right? And I think part of this too is like, we are being a lot more apologetic about not liking the movie than we were on quite a few others. Yeah. But I mean, let's just be honest. Some of us have extremely like basic tastes and movies that are masterpieces bore the heck out of me. Like Godfather is probably a good movie, but I'm bored. I'm sorry. So confession, I've never even attempted to watch it. Yeah, I know. That's going to cause quite a window or quite a storm in our comments. But sorry. Yeah. No, I mean, um, yeah, like Scarface and stuff like that. I just I've never had any interest in watching any of those. Um. So, yeah, I I feel like because our opinion on this film, I wouldn't say it's so negative, but it is a little bit more critical, right? And that's why I'm Mm -hmm. thankful, and I've said this so many times, this is why I'm thankful our our podcast isn't just like a a review podcast. Like, not that there's anything wrong with that, but I would get so bored if all we did was talk about how this movie worked, how the movie didn't work. Mm -hmm. I'm not even sure to have the language for that. No, and... You know, the thing is, I don't remember, I think you may have said something or someone else had said something about like the rewatchability of a Star Wars film, or I think maybe it was like Clone Wars and someone's like talking about how these episodes aren't rewatchable or whatever. Um, now that I think about it, I don't think it was you, but someone was talking about it. And I just remember sitting there and being like, but the thing is, we're never watching it in the same way, right? Mm-hmm. I may go two years without watching War of the Gargantuas, I watch it again. I'm like, no, no, I enjoy it more this time because things in my life are different, right? That's, Mm -hmm. that's a very normal thing. So that's why when we get all up in arms about, you know, if you like the anime trilogy, you know, you're not a true, you know, you don't have appreciation for the tokusatsu genre, blah, blah, blah. There's some guy going on about that yesterday. (laughs) Right. Um, And I'm just sitting here and I'm like, well, first of all, I don't really care. I don't even know who you are. Um, but I mean, our, our tastes develop and change throughout life, you know? Mm -hmm. So to make these grand definitive statements and then what happens in a couple of years, if your opinion changes and now you're starting to praise it, like you just look like a hypocrite, right? Yeah. So I don't think there's anything wrong with saying you love something, but there's a point where if you're too positive or too negative, I mean, yeah, I, you know, I made a comment the other day. I was like, I used to like bananas as a kid. I don't like bananas anymore. I used Preach. to be Mormon. I'm not Mormon anymore, right? Like, I used to not like foreign films. I love foreign films now. So it's just, 
things change. And mm-hmm. that's why we're not a review podcast. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, we, we kind of wanted to talk about our methodology and how we interpret um, and analyze these films. Because that's kind of a conversation that's been brought up in a couple different circles. Um, so Chris, because you're the one who joined me on this journey how when you're going in and you're you're watching these films kind of what's your approach in finding something to talk about yeah well see here's the thing there's the ideal approach and maybe the realistic approach right and i think this kind of is broadly setting the stage for everything we're going to talk about but i so so just but just about everything on the stage to be completely honest is what i'd like to do is go into the film only know only read into it what the text is actually saying and only draw from it the author's intent. But of course, that's not really how it works because as me, a straight cisgendered white guy who grew up in Iowa, like I come with my own preconceived set of notions. And, you know, as an American, we have our own cultural mythos that's built up our popular imagination that's going to help us read into the movie a lot of things that we don't. So, when it comes to like acknowledging both the ideal and the realistic, you know, my approach is trying to say like, if I write down a note, like try and take the timestamp, if it's available, try and take at least the general scene and say like, did someone say this explicitly or is this something I'm reading? And then try to just work with the explicit text for a little bit. And then um, once I kind of worked with the explicit text, then it's like, free reign to let your imagination, your Western cultural imagination start running and say like, here's the stuff that I have supported by the text and here's the stuff that I'm bringing to it. And here's what I think it interacts with well and converses with well. Um, But that I'm not going to say, Oh, because of something he explicitly said, I jumped here. It'll be like bringing in my own experiences. This is what I can relate this to, you know, does that make that makes sense i think it does it, it makes sense so why do you think it's important to acknowledge what you're bringing in then because when it comes down to it there's never anything that we're not we're never reading anything 100 percent purely so what i could get from a i mean maybe a math textbook but we're not we don't read those for fun unless you're a mega nerd but um even just like hearing um like even like take an example from my youth. And I think this is actually like, it sounds really silly, but as I was reading like Gadamer and other interpretation theorists, language theorists. So I, this press pause. So for people, including myself who are not super familiar with Gadamer, who is Gadamer? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I think go. sometimes we bring names up and we're not explaining who they are. <laughs> yeah. So I was going to get into that in a sec, but um, really Excuse on the broad... me. <laughs> well, so just the quick down and dirty <laughs> version is Gadamir comes out of this school that studies like language. So I think, um, oh no, I just lost his name, but he talks about the process of interpret interpreting, because if you look at the 1900s, you have all of these um, scholarly works being produced in French and German, and they're getting brought over into the States so we can start studying in a multicultural sense. So like for our interest, right, you've got a bunch of biblical scholarship coming out of the Germany mm-hmm. in the 1900s. Uh, you got like, um, uh, oh my goodness, uh, Karl Barth 
and we're translating his work into English. And Gadamir is pointing out every time that we interpret, we're losing something because we're taking it out of its cultural settings and putting it into our cultural settings using our words that have its own meanings behind it. So Gadamir, essentially, his kind of the famous thing that you'll hear that he says is that all interpretation is violence because and all interpretation is um, or all translation is interpretation interpretation and then all interpretation is violence and because we're constantly interpreting because we're bringing this in so my example was when i studied egyptian religion at iowa state i couldn't help but bring in Yu-Gi-Oh from it because you know it's the egyptian children's card game so i'm hearing about the sun god <laughs> Ra. And I'm thinking like, oh, sacrifice three monsters and it's attack points. Is the, and I'm like, no, 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 no. This is like real. This is real stuff. Like the Pharaoh actually like worshipped Ra. He was the embodiment of Ra. The card that I bought in a special tin was not Ra. So then I was like, okay, shoot, maybe I'm studying Egyptian history badly because I'm bringing Yu-Gi-Oh into this. And I'm like, where are the Millennium Puzzles? Like, where are the items? And it turns out that's not part of Egyptian mythology. That's part of Yu-Gi-Oh mythology. (laughs) So that's when I started realizing, like, what am I bringing into any text that I'm reading? Because here I am, again, as a cisgendered white American man, I'm getting a women's studies degree. So I'm constantly defensive against texts that talk about patriarchy, constantly defensive against texts that talk about like white supremacy, male supremacy. And I'm like, wait a second, that's because I'm bringing my privileged experience into this. So when you when you get reflective about that, I couldn't help but see everything is what I'm reading into it. Like, I mean, even the whole concept of what we're doing, we're not watching War of the Gargantuas by itself. We're mm-hmm. watching this as the 14th movie in a series. I mean, granted, it's the series in order we've kind of determined, whether by um, intention or by a list. Um, we would be doing a, you guys and each other a disservice by not admitting we're bringing 13 previous movies into this. Yeah, this is not my first movie. If we wanted, if we wanted this to be an unblemished view of the movie, that'd be impossible. If we wanted it to be unblemished by other kaiju films, we'd have to have a new host every week because Mm -hmm. I've already seen 13. So I can't not have seen those 13. (laughs) But even still, you have people where maybe they already have a perception of Godzilla because they've, you know, there's there's so many things that come into play here. So it's, it's impossible to have that pure reading of the text. Yeah, I mean, think about I think about the way we've seen Godzilla in American pop culture, like even just something like Rugrats, like full episodes were built on their Reptar toys. So mm-hmm. you can't have not heard of Godzilla. Yeah. Or at least have some kind of imagery steered mm-hmm. into your brain that you may not realize that's what it is. You make that connection. Then all of a sudden now you're putting things together. Um, before yeah. we go any further, though, Egyptian mythology was uh, Kribo. Is that legitimate? <laughs> yeah. That's one oh, of the gosh. one of the few few monsters I remember from that. Um, dude, I loved Yu-Gi-Oh as a kid. I remember oh, being in too. middle school, like I freaking killed people with that game. Oh yeah. Oh, for it was, sure. It was fun. Um tried playing the PlayStation version. I remember the games being so frustrating because they had different rules for the games than the actual yeah. card game. I don't understand that. Like you like Pokemon training card game, I felt like it was that way too. Um, I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. So 
so really what you're saying is when you're coming to these, we're going to equate movies with texts here, right? So books. Yeah. Um, when we say text, so not text messages. So when we're coming to these films with our perspective, mm-hmm. what you're saying is it's not that it's always necessarily appropriate to look at a movie and be like, this is the movie's comment on feminism or racism or anything like that. But what you're saying is as human individuals and also people who live within a community, it's impossible to watch these movies and not let our views on all of these things potentially influence the way we watch and consume and interpret and almost in a way regurgitate what we get from these movies out there. Is that kind of yeah. accurate? So let me use another personal example because I think... Um, as a lot of people have pointed out, when I'm high in the sky, it's almost impossible to follow at times. So for my women's studies thesis, I wrote a 35-page paper on masculinity and the Black Widow from the Avengers movies. Mm-hmm. So at this point, it was Iron Man 2 through Age of Ultron. And I was looking at the way in which Black Widow embodied masculinity in her female body. Never once would I think that Joss Whedon or John Favreau, or any other movies that she was in, I don't think they were making a point about her being a masculine character. <clears throat> I don't think until Age of Ultron kind of botched the gender discussion in terms of her and Hulk's relationship, I don't think they were making a point about embodied masculinity. I don't think they were drawing on Judith Butler and gender perform- performativity. But I know that because I that's the framework I operated under under at Iowa State in my undergrad, I couldn't not bring that to the text. Mm-hmm. But I never once in my paper said, Joss Whedon, when he had Black Widow and Hulk touch hands, was trying to signal this. Yeah. Like, we are ascribing quite a bit to their thought processes. But we are also in that acknowledging we live in a world of ideologies and frameworks that shape the way we think. Mm-hmm. So it is hard to say that Joss was completely absent of thinking about masculinity and femininity yeah um so we don't want to say that we're not ascribing that to them but we are saying we are operating under a world where these ideologies are hard to hard to escape from Mm -hmm. and so we talked in the past about um a religious scholar mercia eliade so what he says is that like basically he's got this theory and it sounds like joseph campbell that everyone's kind of telling the same story, or at least the same types of stories. We're working with the same themes and imagery. And that's because he he ascribed this to a thought that every human being wanted to like recapture the divine. Like by participating in these familiar stories, we are participating in the divine time instead of mundane time. But then you've got Joseph Campbell who just says, these are the stories that are passed down. Yeah. These are the stories that continue to cycle and we see similar inputs. And you've even got in like the religion world, you've got like some Jewish schools, um, certain Christian schools. I'm sure um, Hindu and Eastern religions have something similar where they're saying there is one myth. And I use that in like the scholarly term. There is one story of the world, one story of how we all got here, why we are the way we are. And of course, we're going to tell the same stories because we're raised in this world where this is true. Mm -hmm. So like from the experience I can speak out of, of Christian monotheism, 
there are people who are young earth creationists who say the Genesis account affects every story moving forward because that's the true story. Um, so you can't escape ideologies. So yeah, we've got to be careful. We're trying to be really careful. Say we, this wasn't the point he was making, but this is a read of the film that helps us shape ourselves to be more ethical people, more ethical viewers and more ethical members of a community. Yeah. I think the big thing you're saying here is you're not assigning motive to like Joss Whedon or John Fibrow or anything Mm -hmm. where it's like, Hey, maybe, maybe they made a misstep, right? You're not Mm -hmm. like trying to call, you know, start a campaign over a mistake that they made, which. Right. I, I think that's one of those things where, in our, our current day and age, we're so connected, but we're still so distant, right? Mm-hmm. We'll we'll see we'll see someone say something, and because of our experience, we'll read something into that tweet, mm-hmm. Facebook post, whatever that wasn't intentional at all. And it doesn't mean that these things aren't worthy of critique. But now all of a sudden, we're assigning motive to people, and we just think that because they're within our sphere of discussion. Um, that we have the right to speak into that, you mm-hmm. know? Um, so I think all that's important though. You're right. Because the way, the, the way we live, um, where we live our communities, um, are eventually going to influence our worldview. Um, and, and the way that we live is going to be reflective of that, whether we realize it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, my approach in these films is... I was really struggling with a name for it because it wasn't postmodern because the idea of postmodernity is truth is relative. There is no, I mean, there's, it's almost like there's no author, there's no text. It's, it's, it's really all relative to the person. And then you kind of get into, well, what defines a person? Who is a person? Is it your thoughts? Is it your physicality? I mean, there's a whole laundry list of things you could get into there. But I can never really subscribe to the idea of enlightenment thinking, too, where it's so rationalistic that there's no room for nuance or plurality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of felt like this bastard child of competing worldviews. Um, and it wasn't until I really went back and started looking at the early church and I started seeing the way that they interpreted the Bible um, that it kind of made sense. This is what I've been doing with these films since day one. I just didn't have a name to it. Right. So Mm -hmm. to give a little context for people who aren't familiar with patristic theology, um, this can be very reductionist. Um, But in the second, third, fourth centuries, you really kind of had two train of thoughts. You had the school of Antioch and the school of Alexandria. Um, The school of Antioch is what you would call a literal reading of the text, but it's not a literal reading in the way that most people read the Bible now where if it says Jesus wept, they would just read it as, well, Jesus was crying, right? Mm-hmm. They wouldn't actually look at what is that text trying to convey. They just kind of read it on a surface level. So the Church of Antioch was very big on a literal or intended, like it was kind of like a, a plain reading of the text, where if it was, you know, hyperbole, it would be read as hyperbole. If it was a narrative, it'd be read as narrative. If it was a historical account, it'd be read as a historical account. Just, you know, they were trained to know what to read it as. Um, There's a lot of emphasis on rhetoric, um, like homilies, stuff like that, a lot of uh, oratory preaching. 
Um, so it, it, in a way, I feel like the school of Antioch was more, not more practical, but they never really spent time with kind of what you're saying, pie in the sky stuff, right? Mm. Um, again, this is very reductionist, but you have the school of Alexandria, though, where they took the approach of allegory, where the allegorical approach isn't that truth is relative. It's that sometimes a text was trying to convey something deeper or maybe a text isn't relevant to us anymore because of certain things. So now we have to find a new meaning. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's several scholars that look at like Psalm 137, you know, talking about Babylonian captivity, you know, bashing babies' heads on the rock, stuff like that, Mm -hmm. right? And it's like, okay, as a Christian, how do I interpret that? Because now as a Christian, A, I'm not in exile. Um, B, Jesus says, don't do that. So Mm -hmm. we have to come up with a new meaning for that text to be relevant to our lives, right? Um, You can look at what it meant there, but if I'm going to include that in my prayer life, I've got to be very careful about how I do that. Mm -hmm. So I say all that because when I watch these films, I, I acknowledge that there was a very concrete, real reason why and how this movie was made. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that's the only way we have to watch it, right? Right. So if we take a theme, like when we did with Frankenstein Conquers the World and we looked at human worth, granted, I would say that's probably what Ashira Hanna was trying to do with like the, you know, discussing what happened to people who were affected by the bomb. You know, were mm-hmm. they allowed within community, within society, were they pushed away? Um, that's a very real discussion. But how do we bring that into our day and age now. So I had someone message me about this discussion in the context of being transgender. So what does that mean to this person who feels like maybe they have less self-worth because of how society views them, right? Mm-hmm. That, that became a very real conversation for them. So I think that's important that, that we're able to take these movies and look at them in a current light, but it doesn't do away with the original intent. It doesn't do away mm-hmm. with the original meaning. Um, it just means that we're continuing that conversation, right? It right. doesn't mean that we're saying that Ishiro Honda or any of these other um, creative types, we're trying to inject Christian imagery into the films. What we're saying is we don't believe Ishiro Honda or any of these directors or writers we're trying to make a manifesto. We believe they are trying to have a conversation and we're picking up on that conversation, mm-hmm. right? Gojira started as a conversation on nuclear warfare. It wasn't meant to be an end-all, like, I made this movie, therefore everything's going to be solved. It was, in a way, it, it, in a way, it was having a conversation with people that they probably wouldn't have listened to any other way, right? Yeah. You know, so... For me, that's that's kind of the big thing is how do we have conversations about important things in a way that we probably wouldn't have the ability to have the conversation else elsewhere, right? Right. And I think part of that, like, so that's why it's really important that we're not ascribing intent. But if we only discuss the movie in their contemporary context, we'd be just letting it sit in the... When, when was this movie again? The 70s? Uh, 66. 66. Okay. If we only discuss this movie in terms of what it meant in 1966, we need one podcast in the entire world with one encyclopedia, with one behind the scenes book. Like we're not going to have a lot to say, but no. by continuing to, by continuous conversation, we're bringing it to 
2020 and saying, we still think this movie has something to say. We're just like saying, what does it have to say today? Like, and I, this is the worst way to argue anything, but if you'll grant me like one minute of this, we all do it like Harry Potter. And you know, the, what? Oh, (laughs) you know, the joke is that, um, liberals need to read a book. That's not Harry Potter to just to uncover the world around them. We're starting to see that J.K. Rowling really isn't as progressive as we want Harry Potter to be. Mm-hmm. Like, so when we bring Harry Potter into contemporary politics and say, you know, we're Dumbledore's army, such and such president or world leader is Voldemort, and I don't know if Rowling's going to be on board with that. But we don't, we don't fault Harry Potter fans for doing that. We fault them for only using Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. But like, thinking of how many of my friends. Um, who identifies somewhere in the LGBT community has gotten so much out of the Harry Potter books, despite Rowling's very consistent emphasis that aside from Dumbledore, she's not on board with that. And that doesn't take it away from my friends, but it does mean if, if we were too stringent on the original text and authorial intent, we would have to, and I don't want to, and I don't think anyone wants to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, and, and that's exactly it is. It's just, just this thing of art. Art has the ability to... Yeah, it, it's... Yeah, so I think that's that's it, is we're, we're trying to have a conversation um, and we're going into these films and really just trying to be like, hey, obviously, you can watch these films for whatever reason, but at the end of the day, why not be a little creative with it, mm-hmm. right? I mean... I just, I feel like if we were just, you're right, if we were just going to stop at, okay, what is exactly what Ishiro Honda had to say? There's not a lot of material out there to begin with. I mean, you have the biography, you have a little bit of research from others, but there wouldn't be a lot to say about it at all. Um, And in a movie like this, I kind of have to wonder if there really was anything he was trying to say. So, um, because, you know, we get into the whole Cain and Abel discussion um, and to be honest, you know, and I think this will be a good transition. When I saw that comment, I'm sitting there and I'm like, where are you guys getting this from? Because I didn't see it at all. I'm just mm-hmm. like, okay, two brothers, but they're not even brothers. They're clones. They say that in the movie, at least in the the subtitled version. And then I was talking to uh, Jack and he had sent me the transcript um, of the scene in the, in the American version. And it's talking about, um, you know, since the beginning of time, some brothers have always been different. Um, this is, uh, uh, professor Keita, excuse me. Um, in the Bible, there was the story of Cain who murdered his brother Abel and Dr. Stewart says brother against brother, huh? Sounds like some countries I know. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, so, I, I guess in a way that kind of makes sense if the if the dub goes about it and says that they're brothers. So now all of a sudden we have a conversation of which is the authoritative version? Is it the mm-hmm. subtitled version? Is it the dubbed version? If it's not the dubbed version, is the Cain and Abel reading a valid reading of the movie? Not saying valid, but like, you know, now you're adding something into the movie that wasn't in the original. So now... We have to ask how reliable was the translation that I watched. It's this, it's never-ending mm-hmm. conversation of, again, what you're talking about. Translation is interpretation, and interpretation is violence. Um, so now we kind of have to ask, like, 
how how are what is the responsible way if we're going to discuss these films what's the responsible way to watch it yeah because that's where um that's maybe where the dub versus sub conversation actually gets um gets any sort of importance if we're overly concerned about a canon and maybe just to kind of take some wind out of the sails right away when we discuss the concept of canon there's no canon keeper who's going to kick us out of the fandom well there are but they're going to try one no deserved ones (laughs) um like there there are gatekeepers but there's no like cosmic gatekeeper who's going to kick you out of the fandom in a way that actually means anything if we discuss the wrong one so we got to be careful about that but um when i mean the hard part is most of the time we talk dub versus sub we're just saying like Oh, you're lame. You're watching the one with annoying American voices over mm-hmm. Japanese ones. but Or you're pretentious because you only want to read your movie. Right. But what's the alternative? We're going to... I mean, unless you want to learn Japanese mm-hmm. and learn it fluently so you can watch movies all the way. You know, 80-year-old movies in a dialect of Japanese that has changed over decades. Like, they're the, the most responsible way is to say, well... I can read the subs. They're probably committed to accuracy. They're going to change a little. So the, the most responsible way is saying, like, I don't know Japanese, so I can get close to the original meaning. But until I learn the language, I can't be 100% with it. And even if you knew Japanese, are you still not able, like, do you not still have to resist the temptation of reading things into your interpretation? Yeah, you, know, you I mean, may not you may not fully understand what a phrase is, so you're going to have to use your best judgment to translate and interpret. And eventually, at the end of the day, we're back to square one of well, how accurate is your translation? Right. And okay, so if unless you were a Japanese person watching this movie opening day in '66, you're watching it somewhat irresponsibly. So we're doing our best to keep handrails on and. Um, we are doing our best to say, like, this is an interpretation. This is where we leave the text to enter Christian or religious theology. But yeah. Um, so do you think the Cain and Abel discussion uh, analogy is valid? I guess that's kind of where I want to end this yeah. conversation. Do you think that it's an accurate yeah. description or do you think it's just kind of. I don't want to say lazy, but I'm just I'm thinking I'm like, man, like you really forced that one in. So where do yeah. you land? Here's here's the point of the last 25 minutes of non-kaiju discussion we've had. Um, I see, and that's the thing. I think it's missing way too much of the Cain and Abel context mm-hmm. to really be a meaningful Cain and Abel story. I mean, if you just wanted to talk about the way brothers treat brothers, there's a ton of... Um, great biblical stories about brothers Jacob like from and judges yeah so so i think the cain and abel approach is missing it's missing so much of the cain and abel story even just from genesis itself mm-hmm. that um the only thing maybe that you can talk about is how one of them was overtaken by sin and wanted to eat people but even that i mean the Cain and Abel story is not one of nature versus nurture, which is no. kind of the theme I thought the movie worked out of. So I wouldn't say it's inappropriate. I would just say I didn't see it. If the dub didn't say it, I wouldn't have brought it. If no, if I read zero comments, it never would have crossed my mind. Yeah. 
So I guess that's where I'm at, where now that people have said it, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I could get where maybe someone would get that correlation. But again, I'm watching the movie in the subtitles. Someone makes the comment of, you know, like, so you're saying they're brothers? And it's like, eh, no, they're actually clones, right? Mm -hmm. Because really, and this is where the movie gets so confusing in the subtitled version, is what they're saying they go to the flashback of the weird, weird little monkey kid. Mm-hmm. And apparently that's supposed to be Frankenstein. Like there's not a clear like consistency on this, but the implication is that the little monkey kid was really Frank from the previous movie. He runs away from the laboratory mm-hmm. um, on his way up to the mountain. When he runs away, he apparently scrapes his knee. He loses a portion of his skin. That skin goes into the ocean it grows by feeding on plankton, which now that I'm thinking evil plankton, plankton's evil in SpongeBob. Uh, um, Karen's. Right. So, and then they're like, well, our Frankenstein died on Mount Fuji. But then here, here's my thought is Sanda recognizes Akimi, right? Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, well, it's because this and that. But it's not the same monster. So mm-hmm. if Sanda would recognize her, why wouldn't Gyra? Because they're not the same monster, right? Right. Because that's what I don't get. So they're not really brothers. They're clones. And then in the movie, it's just, it's, I don't, again, gas leak. Gas leak. Like, <laughs> I just, I don't get this. Oh. That gas leak last year. Oh, don't blame it all on a gas leak. Yet. Well, that's the thing is like, um, I, there's this great, <laughs> I never thought I'd ever say this sentence on this podcast. I was watching a great TikTok about this type of thing where, um, two people were talking about a movie and he's like, I hate to be that guy, but the this would never happen in real life. And the other guy says, Well, I mean, as long as it follows the as long as it follows 100% consistently the internal rules set up by the movie, isn't that fine? And the other guy is a a jerk about it. But like if if both monsters could remember, remember, like had the same memories despite being cloned, I'd be like, fine, it's consistent. But since both monsters are inconsistent about how the cloning works, that's when it goes. Oh, yeah. Bummer. Well, and you can't get into the nature versus nurture, because if that was really Santa who was raised by them, you could say that. But mm-hmm. what they're saying is it's not. So that's where I'm like, I, I can't even really get into that because you're right. The it's what we discussed about Matongo last time is sometimes I think you can get so caught up in the the logic and the rules that you miss the forest for the trees. Well, this here, there's just nothing keeping there's it together. There's no forest or trees. <laughs> no, we're in the Sahara. Um well, so something I did think about now that we're going into Cain and Abel, when I was looking through the ancient Christian commentary. Oh, you were able to find it? No, I wasn't. But <laughs> so you cannot find it. I cannot <sighs> find it. No. Um, but one of the the sections here, I remember talking about how Cain was the result of Adam falling. Right? If Adam mm-hmm. would not have fallen, then Cain would not have been born. So in the same way, if Frank would not have fallen into the volcano we would not have seen the birth of these monsters in a sense. Um, Mm -hmm. So, I mean, 
yeah, there's there's probably something that could be said, but it's just I was just very surprised that they're not being as much to that Cain and Abel as I thought there was going to be. And then I mm-hmm. think just in general, this is what you get when studios meddle too much yep. in a movie. So, But here's, here's kind of the fun irony that comes out of this episode. In previous episodes, when we've discussed the theology that we've kind of put around the film, it, that's when it's like, oh, that's not in the movie. You guys are going too far. But now we're taking the theology that is inscribed in the film and say, yeah, it's probably not really there. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. Yeah. I, I just kind of was putting that together that now we've actually spent an episode talking about how it's how sometimes these are inappropriately. These are inappropriately applied. So yeah. it is kind of a nice way to say, like, this is a, an example of us saying we're not trapped by this. We can say when it doesn't work. Yeah. We're not so beholden to making these fit in places that they don't fit. That will do a horrible reading of the film. So, very true. The Mazer cannons were cool, though. Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised it took him that long to, you know. I've always known about Mazer cannons because um, in the later films we see them more. But you know, it's surprising when you think about it. Took him, you know, twelve years to come up with something like that. Um, so it's just going to be oxygen destroyers and Mazers from here on out. Yep. <laughs> and they said Star Wars was bad. Yeah. You know, it, it is interesting, though, you know, that Santa turns on Gyra when he sees all the clothes there on the ground. Right. That that mm-hmm. was a cool addition. So, again, that gets back to one of the things I s- said earlier is just that the monsters are the most interesting part about this movie. The problem is we don't see enough conflict with them. You know, we we see that. And then all of a sudden now they're just beating each other up in the city. Mm-hmm. And then they fall into a volcano that opens up in the ocean. And I'm just like. How how many ideas are you going to take from this previous film and just copy and paste them into this? Like people are mm-hmm. like, oh, The Last Jedi is just Empire Strikes Back. I'm like, well, have you ever seen War of the Gargantuas? <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe um, if we tried it again, it'll be more successful this time. Yeah. So. But it worked. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess. Um. So I realized what we have not been doing lately. Mm. I don't know if I should make a theme song for this, but we need to check it out. Oh, yeah. We have not been doing that. Oh. I'll pour one out for the octopus who is named after multiple octopuses. Multiple octopi. It was? Um, well, if his name was Octopi, that's the plural. Well, no, that wasn't actually his name. Oh. <laughs> I'll let you I thought it. I was missing something no. from the wider context. No, I was just... I'll still pour it out for him because I was like, I still love that. I thought that scene was fun. That's that's yeah. where Toku gets the most fun is when it's got kind of... Like when it's like a Megazord monster or whatever. When it's an mm. octopus monster, I'm like, mm, that's that good stuff. I still think if we did a thing like Monsters vs. Men where it's like, you know, best shot award, I love the shot when the the fishermen look down in the water and Gyra is just looking up. I like yeah. I love that. <laughs> um I'm definitely gonna have to pour one out for 
Kip Hamilton because this was the last movie she ever starred in. Oh. Yeah. No, I think she had one more on-screen performance in TV in 67, if I remember right. Um, but yeah, that song's bad. Even when Devo covers it, it's bad. Um, and they 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 actually have, and I didn't realize this till Henry had mentioned it, they have a whole uh, Scooby-Doo episode that lifts that scene onto that where they have someone else singing the song. It's the same song, and there's a monster that pops up behind them, right? Um, That's funny. So it's, it's funny. Like, of all of the movies out of this whole catalog that has ingrained itself into pop culture it's, it's this one it's this one and i i really think it has to do if i remember right in 1970 it was double billed with invasion of astro monster so of course you would have seen a lot of people going to the drive-in and seeing it there and again from a aesthetic standpoint it's one of the best films. Like the miniature work is great. The the actual action is phenomenal. You have the Mazer tanks. So again, from that standpoint, it's great. Mm-hmm. But then you just get the rest and I'm like, yep. So exactly. So one ended with something a little bit different here. So I did a thread the other day about gatekeeping. Um, and we bring that up just because I think people conflate the idea of being a gatekeeper with being a jerk. Um, but there is like legitimate gatekeeping um, within the community for sure. And um, we have a, a new listener of ours. Uh, his Twitter handle is uh, Call Me Joe. And he had left a comment about how. So we haven't got to the Heisei films yet. Right. Mm-hmm. But you're going to find that these are pretty divisive films in regards to why people enjoy them. Um So when Joe left his comment on the blog, and I was going to read this whole thing just because it was so unique that it it really ties into this idea that we're going to come to the film with different perspectives and worldviews and different reasons why you enjoy these films. And I think that's valid and we need to be open to that. We need to be less um, critical of why people enjoy films unless they're doing it for like Rule 34 stuff. So Joe's comments here, he says, you mentioned here and in your Twitter thread how fans grow in their appreciation for the films. I feel there should also be a related discussion for addressing how personal interests can influence a fan's preference in movies. To elaborate, people tend to lump up the reasons people get into Godzilla for the fight, special effects, and political commentary. This is definitely true for the majority of fans, but then you have people like me who entered these films as a young kid really into marine biology in Wales and caught Godzilla <laughs> vs. Mechagodzilla 2, where Godzilla was acting very animalistic. I found that very appealing, and it felt like kismet when I learned that Gojira was partially derived from the Japanese word, word for whale. Even now, 12-ish years later, seeing Godzilla act like an animal still remains the most fulfilling thing to watch, like the scene in Godzilla 1984 uh, with the birds. I think what other fans should realize about me is that at the end of the day, I'm a zoology nerd first and a tokusatsu fan second. Seeing fantastical creatures mirror animal, mirror actual animals in certain ways was pretty interesting. Even as the Heisei series began to stagnate after Godzilla vs. Biollante, the movies for the most part were consistent in displaying Godzilla like an animal in his behavior and certain functions of his biology. It was for these reasons why movies I personally prefer movies like Godzilla vs. Destoroya over the Heisei Gamera films. Even though those movies were superior in their cinematography, special effects, and writing, 
I was more engaged in the Heisei Godzilla as a monster because he expressed more of my own interests in his animal-like nature. For example, the scene where he grieves over the loss of Redacted. It's not only an emotionally stimulating scene. I was also impressed because his behavior in the scene closely mirrors what social animals such as whales and elephants display. It causes me to think about the relevance of grief and animals as an evolutionary function and how scientists and philosophers for many centuries avoided interpreting these observations as an animal's capacity to grieve until very recently. I can get away in that thinking because up until this point, um, the Heisei Godzilla has been portrayed as an animal and several ethology concepts have been used in previous films to build on that effect. I made a 4,000 word blog post regarding how five of the seven films pursue this. I can't exactly do that with the Heisei Gamera because he was an artificially created creature with an explicit sense of morality and duty guiding his actions. Now with all that aside, appealing to my interest in biology and animal behavior doesn't limit my preference in kaiju films. I still prefer the Heisei Gamera trilogy over four of the seven Heisei Godzilla films. But I think consideration for other fans' personal interests appreciating these movies should be considered when hearing their opinions. Hmm. So I, I just felt like that tied in really well with why we're coming to this, right? Like I got back into Godzilla because I watched a unnamed film you know, because I don't want to ruin it for you. Oh. And I just, you know, because we've had the discussion, but now that you're actually watching it, I don't want to, you know, get into that. <laughs> now that um, I kind of know what you might be talking about. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, just okay, seeing that fair. scene that very directly parallels a view of the atonement that was very specific to patristic thought. And then also seeing a scene directly after that correlating to the ascension of Jesus so not only Atonement and Ascension connected, but in a Japanese film that wasn't trying to convey that. Like, mm -hmm. it's very clear talking to, you know, uh, someone who's involved in that movie where it's like, no, that wasn't his intent in doing that. But yet the same director has also made explicit Christian comments in some of his other films, right? So now I'm like, it's just interesting to me, like that's what brought me in, whether it was, explicit or not that's kind of up in the air but we really should be accepting of the fact that we are going to be coming into these movies for different reasons right maybe you do like the aesthetics maybe you like the political commentary maybe you like the music whatever i mean at the end of the day if you like the movie you like the movie mm -hmm. you know so i really really appreciate that comment joe because that was a good humbling thing for me to be like i don't like the heisei godzilla films but i now i see someone who legitimately has a reason to like them, it's a different reason than I would ever consider, and it's just as valid. Mm -hmm. So I, I really appreciate you dropping yeah. that comment on our blog. I think that's really good because I don't come to these as a Godzilla fan either. Um, it's So I really like that I have controlling interests and then I have Toku under that. Mm -hmm. But I also... I have a great Star Trek movie for you to watch if you love whales. Um, I feel like you might like Godzilla 98 because uh, he's a big lizard in that one. <laughs> and um, that I would actually be interested in reading that post, but I can't. So you're I, you have my click in spirit. <laughs> ah, OK, um, any closing thoughts before we uh, wrap this wrap this nonsense up? This one's kind of a spicy take. Okay, go for it. 
This is one of those ones where I didn't like it much at the beginning, and the discussion didn't elevate it as we had it. <laughs> uh, That's my last thought. Yeah. Ever. <laughs> so next next episode we are discussing uh Ebera, Horror of the Deep. So this is gonna be our transition away from Ashiro Honda being the director of a Godzilla film. So we will not see him we'll see him direct a movie after that. A couple times, right? But for the most part, so let's see. I'm looking here. We've got, I think, so we've got King Kong Escapes down the road. But as for Godzilla films, we have one. When did he get captured? Two. (laughs) If only you could hear the way I'm looking at him right now. Okay, so one, (laughs) two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So we have nine more Godzilla films in this era, right? He, Ashiro Honda is only going to direct three more. So it's, it's going to be a change up. Is it going to be he's, good? Is it going to be bad? This, um, he's saying this as much for my sake as yours, probably more for my sake than yours. You're it's all, all like, yeah, it's, I know it's this. all for your sake. <laughs> yeah. Cause if he didn't tell me what the next movie was going to be, I wouldn't, I'd be like next Saturday. I'd be like, what are we watching? Yeah. Which one? Um, Where do I get it? So be prepared for uh, a movie that... So the, the reason I bring that up is we, we were discussing a film that I would argue doesn't have a lot of depth. But the next set the of... The Horror mov- of the Deep doesn't have depth? No, I'm talking about War of the Gargantuas. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I know. Deep depth. But <laughs> I would say the enjoyability of a lot of these films moving forward. There are definitely some like uh, Godzilla vs. Hedorah. I'm really excited to get into that one. But... The point being, I think the enjoyment level of these movies, we're going to be able to kind of play off that energy. Um, Good. So I think it'll be it'll be intriguing, even if it's uh, not going to be as prolific as, say, you know, Mothra or something like that. But Mm, um, wow, that was that was a huge tangent. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to edit any of that. We're just going to leave it in. So uh, until next time, thank you again, everyone, for tuning in to the Kaiju Apostle podcast. If you like what you heard, uh, if you have a comment you would like to share, or if you disagreed with us and you think we should be taken off the air, make sure to let <laughs> us know over on our Twitter or Instagram pages. Uh, our handle for both is Kaiju Apostle Pod, or you can email at us, <laughs> email at us, <laughs> <laughs> contact at the kaijuapostle.com. Uh, as you can tell, this is my first week back to work, and I'm so exhausted today. Uh, you can also follow Chris on Twitter at Chris Worms. Um, lately, he's been talking about uh, what, which Power Rangers are you watching right now? Yeah, I just finished Jungle Fury, and I watched RPM recently, so I'm in Samurai now. Okay, which is the back to the Neo Saban era. So, so now I can talk about eras like you do. Yeah. So since I don't watch any of that, please keep him busy. He needs people talking to him. Um, mm-hmm. Or you can mute the hashtags. I do. <laughs> I do those so that they can be muted if they bug you. <laughs> um, and lastly, since there are a lot of Godzilla podcasts out there these days, you know the drill. If you'd be willing to leave a review, that'd be awesome. If not, that's fine too. I mean, <laughs> if you're listening now, you're kind of committed. Um, but until mm-hmm. next week. Uh, Bye.
Let's leave it. <laughs> oh man, this is uh, this is gonna be a rough one. Oh shoot! What? I meant to um, I meant to work in a a line for the opening. Oh, what were you gonna say? Can I just do it without context? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, hang on. Give me one second. I'm just gonna leave this at the end of the episode. No. Okay, wait. Um, I don't like Santa. It's coarse and rough and irritating. Bye. It's 